Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargreave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication from the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're talking to Nicole Sykes, Director of Policy and Communications at the think tank Pro Bono Economics, about evidence of a wage gap between charity staff and people working in other sectors. And what on earth can we do about that? But before we talk to Nicole, Emily, it's always fantastic seeing you come into the office every single day. What a dream job for me, and I'm sure for you as well. <laughs> yeah. And this morning I saw you waddling into work across the uh, the first floor of Haymarket Towers. <laughs> you eased yourself ever so gently and gingerly into the editor's chair. I just wondered, is, is there any sort of news you would like to share with the listeners? You mustn't make me laugh, Russell, because every time I laugh, someone kicks me in the ribs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, well, thank you so much for that charming introduction. I uh, remember you saying all the way back in April that you planned to set up an office waddle watch. And uh, as ever, as any good editor should be, I am nothing but delighted to see my reporters and team realising their dreams. Anything I can do. Um, But yes, I have a little bit of personal news. This is going to be my last podcast episode for a little while as I am about to go on maternity leave. Emily, it's so wonderful. I could pretend to be surprised, but as I've sat opposite you for several <laughs> months. Six months. Yeah. I think it's been a it's been um a, just a slow process, hasn't it? Exactly. But um it is so exciting. And um I know that you are excited, trepidatious a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, it's my first baby, so I have absolutely no frame of reference for Mm. anything. I'm very much leaping into the unknown. Um, The whole process has been fairly extraordinary, but overall a very positive one. And um, I've had a lovely team around me for the whole time being very supportive. So that's been ace. Um, But there's just so much that you you don't realise before you kind of go through this experience. And I have to say one of the most hilarious experiences has been the weekly update email that I get from the NHS, Mm -hmm. which it tells me about how the baby is uh, growing and developing, but always in the most unusual and random of ways. So... For example, I'm 35 weeks today, and this morning I got an email from the NHS informing me that uh, the baby is apparently as tall as two bananas and the weight of a honeydew melon. I mean, but I mean, bananas, that, huge, huge <laughs> range. Are we talking about Cavendish bananas or Ladyfinger bananas, Bendy EU bananas? It, it could be anything, couldn't it? When's the last time you held a honeydew melon, Russ? Well, I'm more worried about when's the next time, because I'm going to do that, but I'm only going to be able to think about little... <laughs> Little baby birds and everything that, that 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 they are up to as we speak. Um, yeah, no, I know that it's sort of. Uh, I know from a friend's experiences that you get that whole thing sort of starts as a kind of a, a green bean, and then mm. slowly that kind of chart gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually, I guess, kind of actually having the baby becomes becomes inevitable. Natural. Yes, turns into a baby at some point. Um, and you're going to be off for a little while. Are you looking forward to maternity leave? I yeah, I am. Um, maternity leave is certainly going to be a big transition for. Me. Me because I came straight to Haymarket Towers, which is the publishing house that owns Third Sector. I came straight out of university. I've been working here for seven years without a break of more than three weeks. Uh, so the prospect of nine months mm-hmm. uh, outside of full-time work is, is quite hard to get my head around. And people keep saying to me, Emily, you know it's not a holiday, right? <laughs> so, well, um, but even more weird to be taking a break from Third Sector um, I feel like I've got far too much to do to be doing anything so silly as taking time off to have a baby. Um, and of course, I will not be enjoying the pleasure of your company 
every day. I mean, that's the the big blow. I think mm. I, I will. I will. If you'll if you'll spare me a slightly schmaltzy moment, one of the oh. reasons that I joined Third Sector is because I knew that working with you would be an absolute pleasure, which is what it has been and will be again. But there is going to be a period when there's going to be a lot more Andy Ricketts. And a lot less Emily Burt. I'm sure that's going to be absolutely fine. It's but, going to be great. But we will we will miss you so much. And we'll be thinking of you and everything that uh, you and, 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 and Shane and everyone are getting up to at home. And um, we'll be excited for you. But we'll miss you so, so much. It, oh, we really will. Bless you. I mean, it's yeah, we've had enormous fun in the last few months. And um, I, I would definitely miss it. But I know that Third Sector is being left in the safest of hands. So Andy Ricketts will be stepping up as acting editor while I'm gone. And I know that he... Two of you are going to do a stellar job of managing the podcast. Um, I'm already finding you incredibly entertaining. Good vibes on the mic. And I hope as well that there are also going to be some exciting new faces, voices coming on the mic soon. So definitely hold fire for that. So there are going to be some new voices and faces around the place, which is pretty exciting uh, for me. You're going to hear them through your headphones when you're given a spare moment by uh, by the, the new arrival. Can't wait. Um, and Andy and I will make sure that we send you messages. I'm thinking, when's the few times you're going to be able to get just like a bit of time to yourself, a bit of sleep maybe? We'll target then for okay. phone calls, funny jokes. Bulletin tests. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We'll, we'll send you some emails about just the daily run of news. Just see what you opinion is i'd imagine you'll be thrilled to get involved i can't wait but uh, for now then let's crack on with this podcast episode and of course we're going to be talking today about a very important topic for the sector uk charity staff are paid an average of seven percent less per hour than their peers working in other sectors according to new research that was published last week Yes, analysis by the think tank Pro Bono Economics revealed that voluntary sector workers faced a collective wage penalty of nearly £1.5 billion in 2019, compared with workers elsewhere in the economy. And these figures are not static. That pay gap widens throughout someone's career in the charity sector, peaking at 9.4% for those aged between 46 and 50, according to Pro Bono Economics' findings. And pro bono economics also warned that the size of the charity sector workforce is rising faster than in other parts of the economy. So an increasingly large section of the UK's workforce is earning less than they could if they worked elsewhere. To find out more, we sat down with Nicole Sykes, Director of Policy and Communications at Pro Bono Economics. And we started by asking her whether it was a surprise to discover the sector was experiencing that wage penalty. Yeah, so as, as you say, um, that's that 7% gap. I will say that is a pre-bonus gap. Um, so if you're taking stuff like private sector bonuses, that gap in reality is is probably a lot larger. We just don't have the data available to calculate that. Um, I'd say I don't think it's a surprise. I think we all know that um, charity sectors, sector workers are paid less. Um, uh, but it was a case of this has never been quantified before. Um, and it's quite important to do so, we felt. One, for the individuals within the sector who are um, at this very moment in time trying to work out how they manage the cost of living, much like every other sector. We felt it was also important in terms of, as you say, the sector is growing. And uh, if, if this is something that undermines the sector in any way, it's very important that we we quantify that and, and, and look at how it might be impacting um, the sector's competitiveness. Um, so it, it was important for a range of reasons to actually look at that and work out, is this something that we need to be concerned about? 
And what would you make of the sort of countervailing view, which has, I think existed for a long time, even inside charities, which is you work in the social sector, you're doing a bit of good, you know that you're helping society. And that's the trade-off. You get that satisfaction, but you maybe don't command the wages that you would elsewhere. Does that, does that hold water for you? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's a counter argument at all. I, I think it's, I think it's a basis of fact. We know that <laughs> um, people in the charity sector are not motivated by pay as much as they are motivated by purpose and passion and change and, and, and all the things that get them out of bed in the morning. But it doesn't mean that pay doesn't matter. Um, and I think, yes, it's, it's, it's long been the case that, um, you know, purpose is, 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 is more important than pay. But there's two real concerns that I have about that. Um, one is, are we missing out on skilled individuals who will not come to the charity sector because of that pay gap? And if so, you know, basic economics will tell you that if, if you don't have um, uh, competition over, you're, you're not going to get the best um, the best people working with you necessarily. You're going to be missing out on skills and talent. And that is a bad thing for the sector and its effectiveness and its beneficiaries. Um, and then I'd also worry about who feels that they cannot make the leap into the sector? We know that there are multiple diversity problems that the sector faces. We know that if you if you come from a more disadvantaged um, socioeconomic background, you're less likely to both get in and get on uh, in the sector. We also know that the sector is about 10 years behind the rest of the economy on ethnic minority representation in the workplace. So are those factors being influenced by the fact that people feel that they can't make this make this pay gap leap. And I also think from a sort of big picture perspective, pay isn't something that we can afford to be complacent about because we do purpose. Because we're not the only sector that does purpose. You've got rising social enterprises and then business is sort of pushing this purpose agenda more and more. And you can there's a whole spectrum within the private sector of what's PR and what what is real, genuine, we're a business that's about change. Um, but we don't have the USP of, of, of purpose and, and in, in the same way as we did a decade ago. Nicole, you mentioned one of the concerns arising out of the report was, are there people who just won't join the sector, who won't be in a position to join it because of that financial hit? Is the opposite true? Are there people leaving because they can't afford to stay? And are we going to see a shrinking workforce as a result? Um, I think it's really hard to say at the moment. We just we just don't have the data is, is, is the straight answer on that. What I will say, though, is I think we should be concerned about the sector's workforce, not just because of pay, but also because of burnout levels of demand. Um, you know, there are tons of really great data, but um, you know, last October, about three quarters of charity managers were worried about burnout around their staff, half around their volunteers. And there's not really been a break since that point to this point. And we're, we're, we're moving into a quite worrying winter. There's also what happens going forwards. And we already know that the sort of gap that we measured was that 7% was what was happening in 2019. Um, we now know looking at sort of latest Bank of England data that sort of in the year to May, charity income growth rose about 3%, business uh, pay growth rose about 5%. Now that's it's not a huge difference, but over time, you can certainly see a situation where charities are struggling for income and so pay doesn't rise as quickly. Businesses are also struggling for income, it's fair to say, but um, they often have more capacity to be able to um, increase pay. And you're certainly seeing that the public sector as well, you know, we, we've all read newspapers, we've all seen um, uh, the strikes and the rows. 
but they are also getting uh, sort of pay deals, often quite a lot larger than, than the 3% that we're seeing for charities thus far. So you can see that if that gap starts to widen and people are really struggling in the sector with being able to pay their bills, I think it stands to reason that, that yes, you would you would see people leaving for, for better pay elsewhere if, if this isn't something the sector rises to. I guess it's also worth saying that the sector has a low pay problem at the very lowest end anyway. 17% of uh, third sector workers, according to the Living Wage Foundation, are paid less than living wage. So for them, this particular moment in time, that's that's a significant part of our of our workforce that, that aren't earning as much as they could elsewhere. I completely agree. And, and while you've said that we have no uh, data at the moment and it's too early to tell in terms of uh, statistics, what we're going to see in terms of people moving out of the sector, anecdotally, it is something I am starting to hear. And um, we had someone in an interview with Third Sector sort of saying, you know, I think we're likely to start seeing charity workers going and taking, for example, supermarket jobs simply because they can actually pay a bit more competitively. And um, I spoke with a community organization a couple of months ago now who said that you know they were running a community pantry in their local area but they also had some of their own members of staff now using the pantry at the same time and i think your point about the wage gap being widest as people are entering the sector also really compounds that very important diversity problem that you outlined earlier because a lot of the time it's people who are coming up and through the sector and trying to encourage you know, young people from diverse backgrounds to get into the sector, they're going to be coming in at those entry levels a lot of the time. So if you're not going to be putting that work in there right at the beginning, then it's going to be increasingly hard to resolve that issue. And you'll be left with a completely homogenous sector that is actually less equipped to then deal with the very societal problems it's trying to address. And I'd had one other thing, which is churn as well. Mm. You were talking about the anecdotes. I mean, there was an annual report. I was reading about the other, uh, the other day, uh, a social care charity, a massive social care charity, which said that their churn of staff was 42% last year. Um, that That's sustainable if you can find the people who will take the jobs, not that social care charities can at the moment, but it's not good for cohesion within the organization. It's not good for continuity of care, which so many charities are going to be worried about. And it's not good for that kind of idea that people will be moving into an organization that is stable, that has good management and good leadership in place, because people are coming in and out the door all the time. And the the managers of that charity knew it and didn't really know what they were going to do about it. For me, it's, it's, it's a shame because it's, if you look at the really big picture, people want to work in this sector. You know, out of, out of all of the sectors in the economy, the number one sector that people would feel proudest to work in is education. And the charity sector is right on its heels at number two. You know, people want to work in this sector. They would feel great if they could. And there are people who can't. And if we're losing people who can and are doing so, you know, that is very worrying in terms of what it means for our sector as a whole. Yes, Nicole, I think you are absolutely right. And just to touch on what Russ was saying there a moment ago about social care charities, there are subsectors within the voluntary and not-for-profit sector where this looks to be especially intense. So the health and social care charity, Community Integrated Care, this year estimated that dedicated social care workers are paid up to 39% less than their peers who work equivalent roles in the NHS, which I'm sure is also a factor for that churn that you were talking about. Um, did your research from PBE give any sense of whether this is being driven by particular subsectors within the charity sector, or did you not get into that? Um, it, it didn't allow us to get that far um, uh, into the data. What I will say is, I think I think we all know anecdotally that there are very 
very concerning skills gaps and they interact with pay gaps in in a major way because if if there's a skills gap there's more competition to pay so i think yes you you absolutely see that in social care i think we're probably seeing that in fundraising as well i get that sense from again anecdotally that there is lots of competition for fundraisers they also have transferable skills out into the private sector too um so i'm sure there are breakdowns uh, uh between the different groups um i did find it quite interesting how significant the pay gap was for men, actually. Um, they, because they earn, so they have the potential to earn much more than women in other sectors. And um, actually for them taking the biggest cut, particularly later in their lives, um, which does tell you that, you know, obviously that's, we, we don't have a strong male representation in the social care sector. Um, so it tells you that actually this is quite a widespread problem I would, I would see from that. Do you think, so we've talked a little bit about government and not to talk too much about social care, but of course, government contracts is such a key part of of, of how wages do end up in, in those charities. Um, do we want to look a little further about responsibility as well? So grant makers, there's always lots of good arguments for why grant makers should make more unrestricted grant making. One right now would be, well, it can go on wages. It's not going to be lost in project costs or, or something else. It can actually allow charities the freedom to to stick that 3% or 4% on on the wages that they might want to. Um, so in terms of fixing some of the problems seen in that research, would you be calling on foundations to act as well? So, yeah, I think I think all funders have a role to play. I, I will say I think there's there's charity choices in here as well. I don't I don't think it's, you know, we can purely assign blame. I think there's a structural problem. I think there are organisational problems. Um, and, and of course, the situation we, we exist in in terms of income in terms of grant makers, I'm not a grant maker. I've never worked for one. But I imagine if a charity turned around to me and said, can we have an unrestricted grant just so we can pay our staff more? I don't know how many grant makers would be really excited about funding that. But talking about retention, I think, is important here because as, as, as we started with, it's not just pay that makes working in the charity sector um attractive. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Um, but it's not the only factor that interacts with whether you stay and work somewhere. So if grant makers are in a position to help um, provide funding for around training and coaching and professional development, all of that makes somewhere you work a more attractive place to work, and it makes your organisation more effective. If a grant maker wants to invest in things like technology, which can make people's jobs easier, um, which either, you know, reduces your workload and reduces your stress and ultimately, again, makes your place a more effective place to work. I think it's those kind of things which are probably, um, they impact pay and they interact with pay, but ultimately it's about can you attract people and can you retain people with pay being an element? I, I suspect that's probably more where, where grant makers would have an interest. It's an interesting question, isn't it, about whether or not that sort of request would go down well as well, or it would be totally unfamiliar to grant makers. Um, I, I did work for a large grant maker, if, if not for long. Um, and certainly the, 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 the comfortable spot for them is questions about, well, maybe we can invest, as you say, in technology or in helping your trading income go up a little bit or on projects that will allow you to bring in more staff. Those questions about, you know, would you give us more money so we can pay our staff more? It's possible that even big foundations haven't had that difficult conversation with charities yet. Um, and maybe they are what's going to happen in the next few months ahead. It could well be. And, and certainly from the conversations that I've had in this area recently, I don't think it comes out quite as boldly as please give us cash to pay our staff. However, what I am hearing from a lot of organisations is that they could really benefit from unrestricted costs to help them focus on, say, running their operations rather than having very specific mm. funding for certain projects because they're going to have to be um, 
much like they were in COVID-19, responding really quickly to a very rapidly changing situation. And that's even setting aside the fact that inflation means that a grant that a charity might have been given, say, uh, this time last year is not going to now go half as far as it would have done when they initially had that cash. So there's going to be, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be definitely interesting dialogues between uh, grant makers and grantees in the next six months. But um, we will have to wait and see for how that's going to play out. But, but I wonder, Nicole, you know, how do you see this situation of wage stress in the sector evolving as the cost of living crisis intensifies? And, and it obviously compounds the already substantial income losses that charities have experienced as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, as you, as you say, it's it's part of this big picture. Um, we need as the sector now more than ever to be operating at its best. And we know that it's coming through a pandemic which has left its workforce more stressed and 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 strained. Um, we know it's left its finances in a worse position. So it's coming into sort of a second crisis. And we need the almost a million people who work in the sector um, uh, to be at the top of their game. So this, for me, is about moving into this, this sort of new phase of, of, of crisis. It's not going to be the last one. We need the sector to be resilient and, and pay is part of that. Our workforce is part of that. Of course, volunteers and, and everything else is too. Um, so for me, it's about how do we make sure that the sector is as effective as possible when it needs to be. I don't know that there's a silver bullet to this, um, uh, given that we're going to have falling income from from the public. Um, I think it is about, you know, probably the wealthiest and major donors uh, uh, have a lot of potential at this moment in time. Um, businesses will be looking to see how they can help with the cost of living. Um, but government is going to be under quite a lot of stress as well. I guess my one optimistic point is we saw how the sector innovated its way out of the last recession. Um, it went and sought out earned income in a way that it hadn't before, the growth of charity shops, memberships, subscriptions, etc. Um, it will have to do that again because realistically that that those other sources of income are going to be really, really important. Um, and that diversification of income, uh, I'm sure, will happen again so that we can meet these costs like pay. So obviously, uh, PB exists to help um, uh, charities with economics. This is clearly a moment in time where charities need economics quite a lot. Um, uh, so we will be producing some reports very imminently on inflation and, and what that's going to mean. And we are working with the sector to try and estimate um, costs around energy bills and of course, work out with the emergency budget slash fiscal events slash spending review, whatever Liz Trust would like to do um, in, in terms of spending a lot more money. Uh, we'll be analysing uh, all of that and seeing how effective it is for the sector. So, yeah, definitely look out for that stuff. Fabulous. We definitely will. And of course, I'm sure you are going to be such a valuable partner to the sector in the coming months. We will all be tuning in. And of course, Russ and I will make sure that this piece of research is included in the show notes of this podcast. So anyone listening can go and read about this in much more detail in the report itself. So each week, as ever, we bring you our good news bulletin, full of the positive or quirky news stories we've spotted in the sector. Let's start with a quick question. Emily, how would you feel if somebody waved a needle at you? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Frankly, that is anyone's guess, because I have lived with severe trypanophobia. That's the intense fear of needles in a medical setting since I was about 16 years old. 
I was involved in a very nasty incident with a rotten splinter of wood and a local anaesthetic Ooh. that I'm not going to go into no, on the don't. microphone. But um, I, yes, I, I cannot cope with needles. Um, having said that, you know, the combination of COVID vaccinations and the necessary blood draws actually that come with a pregnancy mm. have done quite a lot of good in helping me cope with that. So I am better than I was. Uh, but I can tell you that my portfolio of involuntary responses to injections in the last year has included uh, hooting like an owl, right, dissolving into hysterical tears or uncontrollable laughter at the mere sight of a syringe, even if it's on the opposite side of a room to me. Uh, and in one memorable incident, particularly memorable, I, I loudly sang the match of the day theme tune to the nurse who was administering my whooping cough vaccine. These are vivid images mm. and it makes me think that the charity story I've got is probably not one for you. In fact, if you need to sing or hoop or holler <laughs> or uh, reload the Match of the Day theme tune, just go ahead while I sure. while I talk listeners through it. I'll but, endeavour to survive. Um, when's a charity more than a charity? When it's a record breaker, oh. Emily. And the record that two charities are trying to break and the two charities in question are Who is Hussein? a social justice charity, and the campaigners at the Imam Hussein Blood Donation Campaign. Their aim is to get 50,000 people, specifically from BAME backgrounds, to participate over several continents in giving blood. Mm. It's going to be in the UK. It's also going to be in Thailand. It's going to be in Iraq. It's going to be in the US. It's going to be in New Zealand. There are countries all over the shop that are taking part in this. And one reason is because giving blood is good. You know, it's one of the reasons that hospitals are able to look after the people who are in their care. But also there is a specific shortage of donations by some people from BAME backgrounds. And the idea is to tackle the shortage of donors in some communities because some people in those communities are more likely to suffer from certain illnesses like sickle cell anemia, for example. And then having blood from those communities will help. It's as simple as that. So the idea is to get people into the tradition of giving blood more often from backgrounds where maybe they don't at the moment. It's a fantastic idea. It's very, very ambitious. I think there are about sort of 600 groups signed up already to do it at the moment. It's got support from parliamentarians, which is always a useful way for getting more and more people to hear the message. And as one of the organisers told uh, the Guardian newspaper over the weekend, Muslim philanthropy is one of the great movements all over the world. But at the moment, donation of blood doesn't quite keep up with donation of cash. So the idea is to try and get the two flowing together, which is just a wonderful idea. So very excited. Probably not, as I say for you, Emily, given uh, your your concerns about any syringes and needles. But in your absence, 50,000 people are going to be out there doing it. Well, you know, funnily enough, I've actually found blood draws easier to deal with than actually uh, having just straight up sort of vaccinations i don't know why i was going to ask why yeah but i feel like we might get too deep i mean this is not therapy so who yeah knows? well I'll, I'll think about it but uh i think it's it's a great you know it's a great effort i think the campaign is called global blood heroes um and at the weekend uh, around 600 people had already signed up across centers in the uk to participate so that is definitely a really rewarding effort i hope that they make their world record fantastic good luck to them and uh, as we are now into September, uh -huh. with both the London Marathon and pumpkin spice season around the corner, I have the news of another world record, which I enormously enjoyed. Um, it comes from America, and there is no charity link that I can identify to this world record. Sure. But I thought it was worth mentioning on the podcast anyway, just for sheer fun. So Dwayne Hansen, who lives in Nebraska over the weekend, set the record for the longest journey by pumpkin boat after he paddled 38 miles down the Missouri River in a huge hollowed out pumpkin that he grew himself. You said pumpkin boat very confidently, like 
I and all the listeners are going to know exactly what a pumpkin boat is. Is it what it sounds like? Yes. Yeah, so he right. grew uh, an 846 pound pumpkin in his back garden and then he hollowed it out and he put it in the river and he sat in it with a paddle and paddled for 38 miles, apparently to celebrate his 60th birthday, which is one of the most niche uh, birthday celebrations I've ever heard of. I mean, it beats, it beats going for a pint or even going like skydiving or some other thing you've always dreamed of. This guy, he had, he had the pumpkin in his back garden. Why not use it? Some sort of Cinderella complex, maybe. <laughs> I genuinely don't know. Um, but astonishingly, Dwayne is not the first person to actually attempt this. He did, in fact, have a world record to beat. Previously, the Guinness World Record for the longest journey by pumpkin boat was held by a guy called Rick Swenson. And in 2016, he completed a 25-mile trip inside a pumpkin when he paddled from Grand Forks in North Dakota to Oslo in Minnesota. So it's not the first time this has actually been attempted. Rick Swenson must be gutted. He's somewhere kicking pumpkins around the back garden. He's, he's already planning his next go. Absolutely. And although Hansen's world record is yet to be officially validated, onlookers are confident that his trip has squashed the previous record. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's us for this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. And in the meantime, make sure that you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Yes, and I am wishing Russ, Andy and everyone else on the editorial team the best of luck with the podcast over the next nine months. It's the most fun to participate in this show and I'm going to very much enjoy tuning in as a listener. So signing off for now, I'm Emily Burt. With lots of love to you, Emily, and all the best of luck. I'm Russell Hargrave. Uh, Thank you to our guest, Nicole Sykes, and of course our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. 